hello everyone and welcome. And, and thanks for your patience as it takes a while to get 1,000 people into a room, even a virtual room. That's right, 1,000 of you. You've helped us break the virtual long walk record. And I know it's not me you signed up to see as the song goes, so let me quickly move through my brief welcome. I'm Steve Donovan, the Director of Alumni Relations at Trinity College. We hope you and your loved ones continue to remain well and safe during these extraordinarily challenging times. We're pleased today to bring you another virtual long walk conversation, the fifth one we've done in the last few months. Thanks to those of you who have participated in these, and for those who haven't, they are archived on the virtual long walk website, which you can find on the college's website, trincall.edu. The programs have been fascinating, and it's been an honor to highlight the accomplishments of talented Trinity alumni and parents. We welcome and encourage your continued suggestions of potential topics and speakers. Just shoot me an email at steve.donovan at trincall.edu. We have another one scheduled for next Thursday that you won't want to miss either. One of Trinity's finest faculty members, Rennie Folco, will join us at noon to talk about federalism and who gets to lead in a pandemic. And her former prize pupil, Brooke LePage from the class of 19, will moderate that session for us. Today, we couldn't be prouder to bring you two of Trinity's most recognizable and accomplished alumni. Danny Meyer from the class of 80 and parent of a graduate from the class of 20, his daughter Gretchen just graduated a few weeks ago, and David Chang from the class of 99. And we're fortunate that an equally talented alum, John Molnar from the class of 85, who knows a bit about the business and culinary worlds himself, has agreed to host this conversation for us. John is the co-founder and CEO of KCM, a New York-based media firm which publishes and produces a range of content, including digital, view, digital news rather, via wake-up call, documentaries, docu-series, podcasts, including Next Question and Back to Biz, and live events. Prior to this, John was a general partner at investment firm Brown Brothers Harriman, where he was responsible for overseeing the firm's corporate advisory business, and also participated in selected private equity investment activities. He remains a limited partner and senior advisor to BBH Capital Partners. John earned an MBA from the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago and a BA in history from Trinity in 1985. John lives in New York City with his wife, Katie Couric, who holds an honorary degree from Trinity. He has two grown children, Henry, who graduated from Colorado College in 17, and Allie, who graduated from Yale just a few weeks ago. Congratulations, Allie. It's now my pleasure to turn the show over to John. Thank you very much, Steve, and welcome everyone to this Trinity College speaker series. Sold out room, that's pretty exciting. Um, so a lot of credit to Dave and Danny. I'm really excited to host this conversation between two of the most talented and inspirational entrepreneurs I know. We all know Danny as one of New York City's preeminent restaurateurs and CEOs, but interestingly, he's not a chef. And we know Dave as an award-winning chef and founder of Celebrated Restaurants, but he's not a CEO. But whatever label you choose, these are two inspiring and driving forces behind some of the most highly regarded businesses in their industry. And the businesses that they've created continue to evolve and grow into new areas, well beyond restaurants, cafes, and bars. The companies they oversee span a range of activities, including catering, operational consulting, media, publishing, content, brand partnerships, and equity investing. And I'm sure both of their businesses will continue to evolve and grow in the face of the challenges the hospitality industry is, is confronting. So it struck me in thinking about them before this conversation that Danny and Dave have more than a few things in common. Steve mentioned, and we can see on the screen, uh, they're both graduates of Trinity College, Danny in 1980 and Dave in 1999. They also both found their way to Trinity from outside the Northeast Corridor. Dave from Arlington, Virginia, Danny from St. Louis, Missouri. And they both set out on a very different career route after college, spending some time doing different things before finding their passion in the world of food. And maybe they'll talk a little bit about some of the things they did in 
those intervening years. But interestingly, by 1985, at the young age of 27, Danny had opened up his first restaurant, Union Square Cafe. And Dave, uh, also, I believe at the age of 27, opened up his first restaurant, Momofuku Noodle Bar in the East Village in New York City. And of course, both were phenomenal successes. And that was just the start of, of incredible careers by these two um, leaders. So I am really excited to have this conversation. Before I begin, you know, I guess I like to think that Danny and Dave quickly agreed that I would be the right person to moderate this conversation. But as Steve alluded, it may have something to do with the fact uh, that my wife, Katie Couric, is pretty good at hosting this sort of discussion. <laughs> and that's just, I got more of them, but I just thought that would be overkill. Uh, but when Danny reached out to us and she wasn't available, he quickly and graciously suggested that I could step in and play the role that Katie was going to play. Well, we'll see how I did. Danny said to me, come on, let's show her what you're capable of. Well, we'll see. But when speaking to my mom about a week ago and telling her she's big fans of both of yours, Dave and Danny, she, and I told her I was gonna host this, she thought for a moment and simply said, bad questions can make for good conversation. I'm not sure exactly what she meant. It reminded me a little of Ugly Delicious. But anyhow, with that, I think we can start the conversation. Maybe before I start, Katie, uh, reminded me that we have to congratulate Dave on Hugo, who's turning one soon, and also congratulations to Gretchen Meyer on her graduation. Exciting for the family. Now let's turn to the, uh, to the discussion. The conversation about hospitality in the restaurant industry was set up in early May, and we're gonna hit this conversation soon enough. But after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, we're witnessing a massive social transformation and a long overdue reckoning over race in America. I'd like to hear from both of you about this historic moment. And if you don't mind, Dave, why don't we start with you? Right, well, thanks for having me, John. Always excited to talk to Danny. Um, Danny doesn't realize how, how inspirational he's been in my career, um, but you know, all of these things are, are, are sort of trivial to the moment that we live in right now. And, you know, I was thinking last week that, you know, history books will probably put COVID-19 as a footnote to what is, um, I think, been brewing for, 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 for now hundreds of years here in America. And, um, you know, being Asian American growing up, I, I feel like I've always tried to represent my viewpoints uh, in a variety of ways. And, and I think Momofuku has tried to do that via food. And, and I think the goal is that, and we've done it in TV shows to show that we all want the same thing. We all want to eat delicious food. We should all treat each other in an equitable fashion. And um, I think it's, it's hard to actually focus on doing that when you all, when you realize just like, uh, how unfair it actually might be and, and how trivial sometimes making food might be in the current situation. And I think, um, you know, I've really focused my efforts on not even thinking too much about the restaurant business um, and focusing on my efforts on, on my family and, and actually getting people to understand why Black Lives Matter. And from an Asian American perspective, I think that a lot of immigrant families have conservative parents that may not want to understand this because they just want to fit in and fulfill the model minority stereotype. And um, I've definitely lived a life that has not lived up to those traditional minor, model minority types. So I feel like I have a platform to be able to speak out on that. And in relation to you know, how that deals with the industry, we're going through a great reckoning. And we, we had that reckoning with the Me Too movement in our industry about what, three, four years ago. And this is, this is something that is long overdue in terms of representation and equality. And um, I'm excited to see where it's going to be. Uh, we, we, we need to fundamentally change our, our business and make sure that we have, uh, you know, a place for all 
in, in all our restaurants and how people eat. And I think one of the things that I can be guilty of, and I think any, anyone that has tried to make really delicious food is when you think about it, we really haven't fed too many people. And, and, and um, I think this is a time for all of us to sort of have that self-reflection. Maybe you haven't fed people in volumes in that way, but you have made so many people aware, aware of cultures and the differences in our cultures and how food has makes that something that's relatable to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that you and Danny do. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the goal is we just want to make that as accessible as possible. And it's, uh, you know, like Danny's got a whole variety of restaurants and, and, and from different price points. And I think the whole idea that regardless of the price point, you want people to leave happy. And um, I, I think that's, that shouldn't change the idea of hospitality. Um, but I've certainly been trying to ask myself, like, what can we do to be better allies? What can we do to better um, spread that message? And um, again, like, it's, 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 it's something that it's going to take some time, but um, um, I'm excited about where it's going to be going. How's your, how's your, um, how, how, how's your emotional level? Are you feeling the weight of what's going on or do you feel, do you feel hopeful or, or do you feel, is it, is it a sad time for you? I mean, how do you, how do you characterize your emotions? I think it's hard to be anything but sad when you realize um, the anger uh, and, and frustration that's out there and what you can do to affect that kind of change. Um, um, so again, for me, there's, the first priority is uh, as, a, as someone that has a platform in Asian American society culture is to get that solidarity there to understand that whatever benefits we have as minorities, it becomes, it's because of the civil rights movement and because of the burdens that, you know, the black population has endured and carried for so many years. And then secondly, it's, it's taking a look at our organization and seeing, you know, where we faltered and where we failed and to make sure that uh, there's nothing systemic in how we operate. And, 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 and I think talk is cheap. Mm -hmm. We have to be, we have to exemplify the values that I know that everyone on this call sort of holds so true and, and, and near to our hearts. Well, let's, let's, let's see what Danny has to say. And I know Danny, I'm curious in your thoughts on that same question about how, how you're reacting to this sort of historic moment. I saw a letter, I was on a mailing list that I think you sent to a lot of people today to customers talking about Union Square Hospitality Group's um, position on what's happening, but take a few moments and tell us uh, how you're feeling at this incredible moment in time and the movement that's going on and the frustration that people are feeling. And um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Well, I'm feeling, um... I, I want to just take a second also and say, you know, I, I miss seeing Dave in his restaurants because I've missed going to restaurants period. And this is not how I would have probably opted to do it, but um, I cannot wait to go back. And I know my family cannot wait either. Um, I said this earlier, but our family's favorite restaurant in the city is none of mine. It is Momofuku noodle bar. And I'm okay with that. I, I kind of, I, I always leave there really full and really happy. Um, but I wanted to say that, I, look, it's, it is a, I'm with Dave, it's a very, very sad, introspective moment. And the confluence of the pandemic, which uh, in and of itself, I think, would have brought our whole industry to its knees. Um, and this, this moment where we are, I, I think, correctly being incredibly introspective and, and asking ourselves, Number one, what could we have done better? And the answer is a lot. Um, and what can we do now? And the answer is even more. Um, there's no question that, uh, that CEOs, restaurants, chefs, organization heads, colleges are all being asked to step into a position of actively using their platforms, as, as Dave said earlier, it's, uh, it's no longer enough by a long stretch to say, I am not racist. 
it's it is keeping your mouth shut and and being a good citizen is actually a negative right now and that's good that so while, while i'm completely uh saddened by what's been going on and while i can tell you that many many of the conversations rich conversations we've had with team members many of whom we laid off just two months ago um, have really caused us to to think deeply to listen carefully and to commit to action right now and is it uncomfortable yes but we know we cannot change the world by opting out of discomfort and this is our calling right now we say we're in the hospitality business and we say that hospitality is something that exists when the other person feels like you're on their side. And we now learn that for too long, too many people in our industry have not felt like we're on their side. And it was not bad intent, but the more you learn and the more you know, and the more layers of the onion that you peel back, you realize so many things that, that we may have done with good intent actually may have backfired. And I'll give you one example. Um, at Union Square Hospitality Group, uh, for a handful of years, we've had a, uh, a diversity and inclusion council. And I've, I find that there's no question, because you can measure that the number of diverse employees uh, grew in our company including board members, um, uh, our, the president of our company is black. It doesn't matter if you, don't, if you don't focus on the word inclusion. And one of my colleagues this morning uh, shared in a really, really good example. She said, diversity is a way to describe who you invited to the party. Inclusion is a way to describe who you asked to dance. And if you invite people to your party and don't invite them to dance, that's even worse than if you hadn't invited them to the party in the first place. And the great thing right now, the, the thing that gets me out of my sadness and gets me into my actually excitement is the higher purpose that we have and the opportunity that will never occur again. Where if you take my business where we laid off 97% of our entire company um, just to be able to survive this pandemic. Well, what that means is that we can now take 35 years of wisdom and paint a whole new picture immediately. We don't have to wait. We don't have to have 2024 goals. We can do it in 2021. And so that actually gives me a, a, a real charge in my step. Um, and now it's, as Dave said earlier, let's walk the talk because our deeds are what we will be judged by, not our words, not our contributions, writing checks. Yeah, we should do all that stuff, but that's peripheral to the, to the much more important work. Do you see um, in some ways the sort of the call to action, the sort of the, perfect storm that's hit between this, um, um, this civil unrest and um, uh, uh, the people's reaction and uh, protest against um, systemic racism and put next to the pandemic has sort of led to just uh, body blows that you couldn't really have imagined in this industry. And yet maybe that's what it takes to, to sort of see the type of change that you're talking about. Maybe sort of gradual shocks to the system weren't gonna be enough. I don't know. Dave, what do you think? I mean, I, I think about this as, a, as a, like a, everything in a sports or food analogy. And I feel that the, you know, we basically created a beautiful sourdough in, in, in the sixties and we just failed to feed it throughout the years and feeding it takes a lot of care and hard work. And as Danny said, you know, these uncomfortable conversations and, um, 
we, we, we just have to continue to push that boulder up the hill and, uh, and, and really not have the disconnect between what we believe and what is actionable. Mm-hmm. What do you think success could look like? And how long does it take to get there? Forget the, forget COVID, but just, you know, talking about, you know, the, 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 the racial unrest and, and the, the, the issues that we're confronting, what would, what would success look like? And is, and, you know, realistically, what's the path to, what's the path to get there? And I, and I guess finally, our restaurants, restaurants can be at the front edge of that because they are such a big part of the economy and they're so visible and there's something that we all do. So maybe uh, address that. I mean, what, what, what does success look like here? What can we reasonably hope for? I'll, I'll take a quick stab. Um, I think before we talk about success, it, I, I wanna just take a step backwards and talk about what's wrong and, and the diagnosis of this, uh, this starter that has not been fed for a long time that is expected to feed so many. The restaurant industry is broken, period. And I think people need to understand that. Um, and it's broken largely economically. If, if the business is not a highly sustainable business, it cannot pay people uh, what they should be paid. Therefore, it cannot uh, either attract people, promote people, advance people, uh, we are an amazingly successful business when it comes to um, your first job. We're a very unsuccessful business when it comes to advancing people uh, and teaching them skills and giving people an opportunity to make good money. It is a rare restaurant these days that can actually make a lot of money itself. And uh, there are reasons for that, that that go way, way back. We have... Uh, in many parts of the country, certainly in New York, a, a broken real estate system where uh, at least 10 to 14 cents of every dollar of revenue goes to, to pay your rent and other associated uh, aspects of occupancy. Another 10% goes to the state to pay a payroll tax, which is a disincentive to hire people. And it's certainly a disincentive to provide raises. The tipping system itself, uh, which is broken, has actually caused all kinds of problems and it's almost impossible to break it. Uh, we've tried, it's not easy, but every time uh, the landlord raises your rent or the meat purveyor raises the price of meat or the wine price goes up or the, the you name it, the menu price has to go up and every time the menu price goes up, those who are uh, legally eligible to receive tips can make more money, albeit on a second tier minimum wage, dramatically lower than the actual minimum wage. But meanwhile, the restaurant itself is squeezed uh, to make money as costs go up because with so many restaurants, there's downward pressure on your ability to price. And so now, all of the employees who are not legally eligible to share in tips, also known as cooks and dishwashers and receivers and anyone in New York state that doesn't spend 80% of their face time uh, with a guest, which is a crazy law in and of itself, those people don't get raises and it's just broken. It's just completely broken. And so I'm hopeful and I'm excited that at this moment, and you're right, John, it took, it took this, this moment where everybody's closed and everybody is burning cash or laying off people or both to, to say, this doesn't work. And restaurateurs all over the country uh, who are famous for going their own separate ways are all talking right now. And they're all trying to confront this moment and say, you know, our industry is like a 95-year-old uh, person with pre-existing conditions expecting to survive COVID. We would have died anyway. And all COVID did was kind of accelerate this. So that plus uh, the, the racial injustice question that 
we are feeling deeply and, and we have a responsibility to confront are all, I believe, in one, one day when we look back, we're going to say this was the moment when we finally got our act together. And now David's going to tell us how we're going to do that. David, how are we going to do it? <laughs> um, I mean, D Danny just eloquently stated all the issues in the industry. Um, you know, and, and I, I almost like sadly joke that collectively independent restaurants are, are being treated like Lehman Brothers. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's a broken system. And the one positive that I have, the only positive I have, uh, a hope and optimism is the fact that um, we can cre recreate this without any of the legacy issues and problems of the past. And, and that's, that seems impossible, but we need impossible solutions, right? Like we can't just say it's impossible anymore. We need to try to do new things. Well, so, so would a new thing be, so Danny talked about leases and I know you, ha you had the tough decision to close I think two locations um, and I think rent and leases were probably a big part of it. Going forward, do you see partnerships with real estate or some type of risk sharing or other structures that uh, help? And the, and the other question I simply have is, won't people pay more for this? Won't people pay more for what you're providing? To me, the basic, uh, tenant of a uh, distinctive product, something with um, with a competitive competitive differentiation, which your restaurants have in spades. People love them. They love the hospitality, the experience, and everything about it. So to me, that translates into pricing power. So why can't part of it be addressed through structural mechanisms like leases, and part of it be addressed through practical um, adjustments like pricing. I mean, simply put, people just don't want to pay more money for food. <laughs> you know, I was talking to Jonathan Waxman and yeah, Jonathan's a friend and he said, nobody wants to be the first person on, no, no restaurant owner wants to be the first person on the block to have a $20 martini. You can't do it. I'll give you an example. When I, when I first went to Gramsci Tavern, I believe the price point for your pre-fee or the tasting menu was like 72 bucks or 67 bucks. And today it's probably 200 bucks. Um, no, less, more? Less, a lot less. A lot less, sorry. But let's just say like back then in the late 90s, it should have been 200 bucks. Like that's the, I think the, what we need to start to reconfigure is, is the entire pricing structure. Um, and as Danny alluded to, the whole real estate situation is, is totally, it's just broken too. So um, I think there's been, I mean, I want to say it's a bubble, but there's been a, a lot of restaurants that have opened up and um, it's been more and more difficult to make money, but there's other people in the industry. I, I joke again that the restaurants are the wildebeest <laughs> and we're there to feed everyone else. Um, and, and unfortunately, we need to sort of evolve into, in, into something else and a different animal. What, I don't know. But um, I think that uh, this COVID crisis has expedited 10 to 15 years of evolution and we need to rebuild what 2035 looks like now. We can't wait. So Dave, I wanna just uh, jump in. So just for the record, you're, you were absolutely right about uh, the opening price at Gramercy Tavern and that was 1994. Uh, which I think was the same, wasn't that the same year? Oh no, you opened in 2004, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, uh, and now it's, now, it's now it's $134 for a tasting menu. Wow. But that's actually a pretty good example of the downward pricing pressure. And it's not just from consumers. One thing that I, I just think is important to name is that um, we restaurateurs and, and chefs did a really good job, I think, over the last 25 years at getting uh, Americans, American restaurant goers to understand why it was important to pay more money for organically raised vegetables, responsibly raised uh, uh, meats, and, and responsibly caught fish. And we've done a really bad job of having people understand why it's, it matters to pay for uh, responsibly treated people. Mm. And 
and there's a there's a player in this. I I have no question in my mind that I would go to Momofuku Noodle Bar just as often if Dave doubled the prices. Not not ten percent. If he doubled them, and I would still love it, and I would still find it a great value. I think that there's another player in this that we all face, and we just haven't named it. And that is that uh, New York is also the media capital of, of the food world. Not that there are not really good food writers all over the country, but the media loves to, to actually help us promote uh, taking great care of people, but it also loves to promote restaurants that charge the least amount of money and doesn't necessarily take kindly uh, to a $20 martini, Jonathan Waxman, right? Um, it, and so we are responding to a lot of different, and by the way, I'm not complaining about it because we, you know, neither of us would probably have the careers we have if we were not doing our business in the glare of the New York media. So it's, it's mm -hmm. zero complaint, but it is a player that is part of the, uh, the landscape in terms of how we price things. I just thought, oh, sorry, go ahead, Dan. I was just gonna say, with respect to, if, if you're on this call and you're wondering, well, what are they talking about with uh, the, the price of real estate? Um, Dave's right, it is a bubble. Uh, there's no question in my mind that, let's say 20 years ago or so, when you started to see a bank on every corner and a, a Dwayne Reed or a, a CVS or a Walgreens on every other corner, what happened is that landlords started squeezing the, the mid-block uh, pricing up, you know, for, for ground floor space. And New York restaurateurs uh, signed these leases. Uh, the landlord's not guilty for asking. And uh, we signed them. And we signed these leases based on a set of expectations. And sometimes there were 20 year leases. I've, I've signed 15 year leases. The set of expectations is very different today. The city is not going to be as dense for the next two years as it was for the previous two years. And so the ability to pay rent when you not only have fewer people in town, but by law, you will only be able to seat you know, a small percentage of those people because we can't gather too closely. Mm -hmm. And then let's not forget, we're going to have a little recession, um, you know, for the next many, many months. We're going to have a lot less tourism. We're going to have a lot less business travel. So the very underlying cost structure, uh, which is the greatest subscription business in the world, your rent, is, is not, it's just not going to work for most restaurants. I'm a um, huge fan of setting the table. We'll talk about it later, but I do think about, and I, I, I send one to everyone, everyone at our company at KCM has a copy of it. My kids have a copy of it. So I'll, I'll plug it, but I think it is one of the best management books written. And I think it applies to so many things beyond the food industry. And one of the amazing things about that book is the food industry is so difficult. You described it as broken, broken before COVID. And I'm in my investment background, you know, I always went to sort of where the bar was the lowest, you know, we went to where it was easy to make money where, where um, the bit, you didn't need to have somebody of your, of your talent or Dave's to make it work. And when I look at the restaurant business, I just think, my goodness, you have to do so many things right, so many things exceptional, and then get up and do it again tomorrow and the next day to have a chance to, to sort of make it at the end of the year. And then ultimately there are forces like rent and payroll that probably subsume so much of the effort that is outside of your control. So I just, in my mind, so I asked the question, so why bother? And it must come down to love of what you're doing and you're passionate about food and hospitality. Dave, <laughs> uh, <laughs> why do you do it? I, 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 um, you know, one of the things I studied a lot in, in, at Trinity was, uh, you know, absurdist philosophy and existentialism and, and I've come to realize that the, the great, uh, if you were going to make a, a symbol of, 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 of Sisyphus, it would be cooking in the hospitality profession. You, you spend all this time making something beautiful only to see it flush down a toilet eight to 10 hours later. <laughs> and, and every day you do it forever. 
And, and there's, there, you could see that as incredibly stupid or incredibly beautiful. And I choose to see it as beautiful because, uh, you know, it's a rejection of your default setting. You, you could do something where most people would be like, mm, this, this is not for me. And that's okay. But this, this business is, uh, when, it's, when it's, as Danny knows, when it's good, it's the best damn job in the world. And I actually think that um, that is not nearly as frequent as it used to be. Um, and maybe it's because we've grown and we have a, a, a lot of mouths to feed and, and benefits to provide. And it's not uh, a creative endeavor anymore. It's now about responsibility. But mm -hmm. as a whole, um, you know, we do this because it's, it's, it's building community and it's, even though we have two big companies, it's still, I think, the concept of small business. And I think that's really important to me. There's a reason why I didn't get into finance, mainly because my GPA was too low. But <laughs> at the same time, I, 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 I found my calling cooking because I was someone that was, you know, basically a lazy student. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do until I started cooking. And I realized, oh, wait, I haven't had a day off in, in, in a year, really. And you know, work wasn't allergic to me anymore. And I, am, I, I always have a hard time articulating uh, why someone would want to be in restaurants. And it's one of those things, if you don't get it, you may never understand. Well, let me ask you, Dave, I mean, with, uh, and I alluded to both the, uh, the expanse of businesses that both you and Danny are involved in different mixes, but you've really merged the world of food and content. And, you know, I, I was telling you before we we came on to the Zoom conference here, how much I've loved listening to your podcast and, and your Netflix show. And you're, you've really, you, you know, you're, you're so authentic, that overused word, but you sort of go out there and you have these conversations, but you, you seem to love what you're doing in the world of content creation and you're passionate about your food businesses and the food businesses have all these challenges and Netflix seems to be paying a lot for content, last I looked. So are you rethinking sort of the mix of your business? Are you reallocating your time? Do you, do you enjoy one endeavor more than the other? Well, I, I see them sort of one hand feeding the other. And I am incredibly fortunate to have this opportunity where I have a, a platform where I can talk about things that are meaningful to me. And those meaningful things sort of overlap with the restaurant industry. So I stepped down as... I guess I was CEO and, and I've been able to focus on doing media, but I, I, I look at media the same thing I do as restaurants. And when we've created you know, a variety of concepts over the years, I've, I've always wanted people to get something uh, of value um, and a different point of view and something that uh, at the end of the day is enjoyable. It, and it's not so different than Danny talks about enlightened hospitality in, in that amazing book. It, there's just different ways to get there. And, a sense of discovery. And I felt that if we can do that with food and explain to people that, you know, this is an ingredient that you may not have been familiar with. And, and just, if you look at it in a different light, it's, it's going to be something that you're going to eat all the time, whether it's like fried Brussels sprouts or a steamed bun or whatever. Simultaneously, you know, media is just a different manifestation of that. And having the ability to do podcast and, and, and TV has been a wonderful platform for me to, I think, educate. And, you know, my, my, my thesis for doing media is, is no, no, no different than doing food. And, and at the end of the day, I believe restaurants are content creators. You know, we, we, we're, 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 we're like distilled zeitgeist of, of culture. Yeah. And how different is that than when you make content in a podcast or a TV show? I think it's pretty, pretty similar. Just so I'm, uh, I don't want to be criticized for not being fair here. I'm going to take a, a question that came in on my cell phone from Joe in the class of, of uh, 17 who asked uh, if you guys were graduating college uh, uh, this year and had a goal of opening a restaurant, is that something you would, you would do? And is that something you would be thinking about? And, uh, or would, you know, would, would sort of post COVID, I think, you know, so who's, nobody's going to try to open a restaurant right in COVID. But once we are through this window of the pandemic, is it still something that is a career that young people can aspire to and think about? Or is it, are you throwing enough cold water on this to say, you know, think twice? I hope that people will uh, continue to be attracted 
Dave, when he said that it's hard to explain, you're either called to this or you're not. And it's, for me, you know, I was a poli-sci major at Trinity, uh, worked in the state capitol, took um, international politics semester at, uh, at the Rome campus. And of course, I cut a lot of those classes and spent my time in the Trattorias, which is, so I do have Trinity to thank for how I got interested in the restaurant business and away from law. But here's the thing. I never stopped being interested in um, placemaking. Uh, one of my favorite poli-sci classes, uh, which was um, urban politics, really looked at, at inec you know, unequal parts of the city. Hartford was a great laboratory for that back then. It remains so today. Great um, opportunity to learn. And I could see how if you invested in a certain neighborhood, you could actually, with a restaurant, you could make a big difference. Union Square Cafe in 1985 was in a neighborhood that was much more known for, you know, drugs and really bleak, uh, some violence and stuff like that than it is today. And we were paying $8 a square foot when I first opened. And so you can That's see crazy. how... <laughs> No, it's crazy. Yeah, I can make a restaurant work if you charge me eight bucks. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. So that is now a rounding error on a rent that's a multitude of that, mm -hmm. uh, or would be. We, we actually got priced out by our landlord after 30 years. But the way I would urge someone who is really called to this profession, because it, it is a great thing. If you like making people happy and you realize everybody eats every day, and, and you can introduce them to a new adventure and you can make them leave feeling better than however they felt when they came, that is a high. That's not going to go away. People are going to continue to want to gather with people. I would just say this, the way to do it is to uh, don't, restaurants are manufacturing plants and you put this manufacturing plant in the middle of high real estate, you're going you're gonna to get in trouble. And so the opportunity to kind of guess where the puck is going and go places that others were either afraid to go or didn't see. Uh, I think Momofuku, you know, your, your neighborhood, you made that neighborhood. And, you know, you, it, I guarantee you that the rents have gone up dramatically in the time since Momofuku Noodle Shop opened and then Sambar. But... Uh, I, I just think that if you can play the real estate game the right way, there's still a really good way to, to make this a sustainable business. Talk about, uh, since uh, we have a, a Trinity College community, a little bit about the road to the restaurant um, business and um, maybe first starting with sort of anything at Trinity that sort of stands out in terms of teachers or classes that had an a real influence on you uh, that um, lasted beyond uh, the, the course. I know um, we've talked about Danny, you were a political science major and Dave, you studied uh, religious studies and philosophy. Um, any courses or mentors at college that um, were formative or were your mentors from other areas of your life? I, absolutely. Um... It's fine. I think about what I learned at Trinity all the time and liberal arts studies to me as I, you know, we have a, a son that's a little over a year now and, and we always have a question to ourselves, where do we want him to go to college or something like that? And I'm always like liberal arts, you know, that's like a no brainer to me because I think it teaches you how to think. And um, I think it's given me all the abilities that I don't know I would have had if I just went to CIA um, or a, a technical school or something like that because uh, I think about three teachers specifically, Ellison Finley Banks, who was my religious studies professor and, and thesis advisor. And, you know, we talked about uh, existential absurdity, like a mandala in Bo Tibetan Buddhism is something that is painstaking creation of sand. And you, you, it's, it's this beautiful work that you spend, you know, hundreds of hours doing only to blow it all away in a ceremony. And it's, to me, that's a beautiful thing. Sorry, that's my dog. And, and um, I had Howard DeLong, uh, who was, I took almost every class humanly possible. Um, 
And I think his, his understanding or his teaching of logic and the philosophy of evolution and philosophy of religion, I, I can't think of a teacher that actually influenced how I cook more than Howard DeLong. And specifically this class on advanced logic, which is a crazy thing because it taught me about paradox. Without going down this crazy rabbit hole, I think about that class almost every day, especially when I'm constructing a dish. Um, and, and, you know, recently I think about Jack Chatfield, who was one of the, you know, uh, uh, a contemporary of George Will. They were classmates together and he was, in, in, yeah, in the 60s, he was instrumental in the, in the students' rights, uh, civil rights movement. Like he was down in Georgia when, when all the change was happening. And I think about my teachers all the time. I just don't know if they realize how much I actually learned from them. Well, there you go. That's great to hear. Danny, what about you? I, I'm having a tough time thinking about professors other than in poli-sci, many of whom made a big difference. I mean, I took a lot, I did a lot of writing at, at Trinity College and I really enjoyed that, but there's three poli-sci professors specifically who came to my mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, one uh, who I think I saw there a year ago or so, Diana Evans. Um, I was fortunate to uh, be her student in her first year. And uh, she taught American politics and, and uh, presidential politics. And um, she, was, she was just outstanding. And then Clyde McKee who was tough as nails, but he was, he was uh, the one who taught me the most about urban politics. And I'll never forget a, an expression he taught me that I think about all the time, which is that we learn at an inverse uh, proportion to the speed at which we go through life. And his whole point was, you drive a car from point A to B, you'll see some things. You ride your bike from point A to B, you'll see a lot more things. You jog, you'll see a lot more things. You walk, you'll see a lot. And, and I just think that that lesson, which is so, you know, may seem simple to you, but I go through life way too fast sometimes. And, and uh, I, I have him etched in my mind. My favorite professor of all, and, and one that uh, I was actually criticized for taking too many classes from, I took five classes from one professor whose name was uh, Albert Gassman. And uh, Dr. Gassman uh, was from Holland. He spoke five languages fluently. And he, uh, he took a number of us under his wings. We would cook dinner for him. Um, he, had a good, he had a good gig going. Um, and we would take him out to, uh, to dinner in Little Italy or whatever that area is called. Um, Carbone yeah. and the Parma, he used to call it. Um, and he was the professor with whom we constructed the first ever international politics semester in Rome. Because before that, if you wanted to go to the Barbieri Center, you were either taking Italian or art history. But, and we took those courses, but we were able to construct an entire curriculum. Um, and we got to know each other very, very well. But he had the thing, he had, he was, he was uh, the most hospitable professor, and not just because he gave us all good grades, which he did, but because he, he was he just- He did on, good grades. I took his class too. Huh? And you, you did very well, because he, he was on your side. He wanted you to act, he thought that you would learn better mm -hmm. if you felt better, and he got it. Mm -hmm. But then there was Sam Cassow, who was probably the best professor I think I ever had. I'm with you on that. Well, I, Ken Lloyd-Jones and Sam Cassow, both. I love them both. Uh, hey, special appearance. How's he uh. doing, everybody? <laughs> he was so stressed out about this interview. <laughs> that, that's my kind of Zoom bomb right there. <laughs> How are you? Did he show you all his awards? I've, been, I've got awards. <laughs> Hi, David. Great to see you, Katie. How are you? Nice to see you. Hi, Danny. Hi, Katie. Hi, Trinity, everyone. Is everyone still on? Yeah, we have. Oh, we're, okay. We're I, I just, oh, okay. Katie, bye, everyone. Katie, okay, bye. Hold on. I just have one message for Katie. Wait, wait. Danny's got one message for you. What's the message? I just hope Katie is half as good at producing as you are at interviewing. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Touche. While we have Katie here, in honor of Katie, Katie wrote a book. I'm not trying to sell your books. But I love her book called Best Advice I Ever Got. 
And when you talk to these incredibly successful people that have their own paths in life uh, to get there, they invariably can point to both mentors and classes as you both have, but sometimes actual pieces of advice. So maybe not to put you on the spot, but I don't know. Can you think of any advice that, um, uh, that you've received? It could be from, uh, from a parent, a sibling, uh, uh, a teacher um, that, that stayed with you and that, uh, that, that's been important in your careers? You know, the, the thing that I learned the most uh, playing competitive golf growing up as a kid um, that uh, my golf instructor told me is that someone's always going to be better than you. Um, and that's kept me humble. Uh, and when I haven't remembered that, that's blown up in my face as well. And I think the second thing I've learned because of cooking and, and taking that sort of same philosophy that this isn't a competition per se, but someone's always going to be better, faster, smarter, is that uh, at least in cooking, why I was so drawn to it was uh, hard work is the great equalizer. And sometimes you can have too much talent that becomes an impediment to your growth as a person. And um, thank God I wasn't super talented because it's, it's allowed me to fail in wonderful ways. Have you uh, completely walked away for golf or do you, do you still play recreationally or have you been turned off to the game as somebody who was that good? Um, a lot of people want me to play. I have played one round in 23 years. <laughs> so I don't know Why if it'll ever like guess. <laughs> uh, Danny, what about you? What's, uh, you give a lot of great advice and I can think of some advice. I could think of some advice that your grandfather gave you from your book, but what, what comes to mind? Well, that I, I don't know which one you're talking about, but that... Um, don't believe your critics so much and don't believe the people blowing smoke either. All right. Who needs my grandfather if we got Molnar here? Uh, <laughs> no, my grandfather, who uh, lived in your town of Highland Park, um, did give me a lot of my best advice. And... I'm going to do a slightly better job of quoting what he told me than you Thank just you. did. But I, I have never heard better advice because I get down on myself a lot when we don't measure up. And I went to him and I think pretty early on at Union Square Cafe, we got our first review was from a guy who wrote a newsletter. This was way before the internet. And uh, his name was Seymour Britschke. And he gave us a dot, which was one less than, uh, fair and two, two less than one star, you know, the best you could get from him was four stars. We got a dot and it was hurtful. He said, you know, the curly headed blazer clad owner can't keep his hands out of his hair, but the saving graces, we know he's not the chef. You know? And I was just really down in the dumps after I read it. And I told my grandfather about it and he said, look, I never, I told you never to go into that dirty, rotten business in the first place, but you did. And as long as you picked a business that is very much in the public eye, which it is, you're going to get a lot of people commenting on it. And you just have to remember, you're never quite as good as all the good stuff they write. And you're never quite as bad as all the bad stuff they write. You just got to know your own compass, stick to it and march forward. Take in the Take in the criticism that you truly believe is constructive and filter out the rest. And the next thing he said, which was great, which I did not write, is he said to me, he, start, he, he then said to me, he said, You're, you remind me of my ham radio. And for those of you who don't remember what a ham radio it is, you know, back in the old days, we'd, we'd get these little things. Grundig was the manufacturer. And you could be in St. Louis, Missouri and tune into Moscow. It picked up everything. And he said, you remind me of, of my ham radio. Um, you're picking up all the static. And what you need to do is tune into the station you're actually trying to reach. That's great and, advice. Uh, so great that advice. was really helpful. Also, one of the things I really love in your book, Danny, and I'm curious what Dave thinks about this too. You both hire a lot of people. I know you've had a tough uh, few weeks and the industry's contracted, but it'll come back and you're going to, you're going to, rehire those people and you're going to build great businesses. And I love your philosophy about hiring your 51% rule. And I wonder, uh, you know, if you just say a few things about how you, how you think about people and the attributes you're looking at. I love the scene in your book where you're looking at the person who's noticed a smudge on a glass and 
they're cleaning the glass. And to you, that shows caring. It shows attention to detail. It, it, it's, it's everything that somebody's doing it, not because they're being observed, but because they cared enough to pay attention to the table and to make sure it was good to go. And finding people like that's tough. So I just wonder if you'd say a word about how you think about hiring people and the qualities you look for and then hear what, hear what Dave does, who also hires a lot of people. Well, I think we've done the best job we can to try to look at the recipe for a successful employee as being 49 parts, how good they are at the thing they do. Like if you're a good cook, that's, you get 49 of the points. And then 51 of the points is who are you while you're doing it? And we're looking for people who are actually happiest themselves when they're making somebody else feel better. And, you know, if I write another book, I'm going to be talking about the obligation to overlay um, a lot more sensitivity and awareness and action to make sure that, that we are painting with every color in the palette. Because I think that uh, as an industry, we have not succeeded at doing that. This gets back to your very first question. And... Um, you know, I'm just going to state that apart from certain businesses we've opened like Shake Shack and, and Blue Smoke, which is barbecue, um, a lot of our, and we, we had a restaurant called Tabla, which was an Indian restaurant, but a lot of our restaurants are Western European in their heritage, Italian, French-based, um, and uh, so if you go back to the very beginnings, where all of my inspiration was either coming from France or Italy. And a lot of the cooks had that kind of training. And a lot of the wine directors had that kind of training. We didn't do a very good job of being aware of the need to hire a diverse team of 51 percenters. And today that's just not acceptable. So I'm going to, I'm going to write, again, at some point in my life, I feel like I'm living the next book right now. So I don't have any time to write it. Right. But, uh, it's, there's going to be a lot more to have to, that I will have to say about this in the future. Dave, anything on how you think about the people that you've hired that you've, that have been so important to you or the qualities that, that you're looking for? Are you trying to find people that complement your skill set or that have certain attributes? Well, I think before that, I think I need to sort of learn, I've learned how to evaluate myself a little bit better um, because of how I, I, I grade people. And I think over the years, I've, it's been very public. I have a terrible temper in the kitchen. I have very high expectations. And I think one of the, the problems was a very famous chef told me, Dave, you're yelling at people because you're a bad chef. And I was like, for years, I was like, no, I don't disagree with that. And I was like, one day I was like, oh my God. I'm a horrible chef because I need people to become allies with me, to, to want to do it the right way when my back is turned. And, and the reality is I, I have to be the best version of myself all the time uh, before I can even evaluate anyone truly. And I think what I look for is someone that's willing to make mistakes and be harder on themselves than anyone else. Um, and, 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 Momofuku over the years, I think, has never really attracted the very, very best cooks. Uh, sometimes we do get them, but we're looking for the underdog, the person that sort of might be cast away, um, because we've always joked that we're the bad news bears, right? We're, we're the we're the castaways, and 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 I think it's it that's that's worked very effectively for us. But now we're an organization that has fifteen hundred employees, or did have 1,500 employees, and we've been in this process of reevaluating how we move forward. And part of me self-evaluating myself was I was always looking for, as, as a sports analogy, everyone's got to be the quarterback. No, everyone's got to be good at that specific role and judge them in that specific role. And that's taken a lot of time. And, you know, Danny's got a lot more restaurant experience there, and he's got a lot more wisdom, which is why I continue to look as to how he's organizing, how he's doing his evaluation of talent because it's oftentimes a benchmark of where we're going to be. By the way, what are you, your, is your memoir coming out in the soon in September? Are you yeah. writing that? Uh, it, yes. It was supposed to come out in May uh, called. The term paper is new. 
yeah, term paper is due. Um, but it's tentatively scheduled to be released in September now. Great. As you look back at all the success both of you have had, setting aside personal decisions, what do you think are one or two of the key business decisions that you got right? Because we know we make mistakes every day and we can correct those. But usually when I meet people as successful as guys like you, you got a couple of the big bets right. And so we'll hold aside Danny's decision to uh, marry Audrey and your marrying Grace and other personal decisions. But I don't know, maybe it was not to go to law school or you know, not to be a professional golfer. I'm just curious, as you look back over these pretty spectacular careers in, a, in an industry under the microscope, what, what you sort of point to and say, wow, I'm glad I got that one right. Dave, you want to start? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you can never have that perspective in those moments. And I think what, I've, what I'm thankful for is that I've just always trusted my gut and my intuition, even when it felt incredibly painful at that moment. And... Um, and that honestly was becoming one of those decisions was like becoming a cook. Every single person in my life said, this is career suicide, social suicide. What are you doing? All credit to Danny for getting in the industry so early on, because this is way before anyone thought it was a respectable profession. And, you know, as a graduate in 99, that was the era of dot coms. And if you're not going to be, especially from Trinity's perspective, yeah, you were brick and border. Yeah. If you're not doing an investment banking or in a, a dot com like tubesocks.com, like what are you doing? And and um, I just always felt comfortable doing what I thought was right for me and connecting the dots after the fact. And and there's just too many moments where um, you know the right decision actually has always been the wrong decision for me, right? Like uh, I've just continued to sort of polish this and and never stop trying to make wrong decisions. Uh, and as long as I pour myself into that, it always becomes the right decision down the road. One of the stories I loved, I can't remember in reading some things about you or maybe listening to one of your shows, you describing the poor woman who was assigned to work with you in the culinary school who couldn't face spending a term as True. your assistant in the class. And she said, I'm out of here. You can't yeah. cook. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not naturally gifted at cooking. I, I, I was such a terrible student at the first semester or it was a six month program and they break it into six months per level. I mean, a level per month mm -hmm. uh, and going to level two, my partner decided that she would rather quit than be my partner again in level two. And, and that may not have been her best decision. I'm just <laughs> So, you know, like uh, I, I think that there's a testament to just staying true to what you believe in. That's great. Danny, what, what do you have on this? Well, I'm not going to be very original here. I think the, I think it's just so important to understand when you're making choices that are based on your own uh, internal belief system and passion and not on what you think are the expectations of you. So what do you do with a poli-sci major from Trinity College? You become a lawyer. So I actually went through that whole rigmarole of taking the LSATs and best decision I made was never to apply to law school. Now, it didn't hurt that my scores weren't all, all that high. So I, I don't know that I would have gotten in anywhere. I don't want to sound like a hero on that, but, um, you know, just kind of bucking what everybody else says. I remember in 1990, um, my dad had just died at the age of 59 from lung cancer. And I, I was so sick of coming home every night smelling like an ashtray. I was angry. He wasn't a smoker, but I, you know, I just, so I eliminated smoking at Union Square Cafe in 1990, 12 years before it became law. We only got busier after that. I like trying to, to do, you know, maybe, maybe my style is, is different from Dave's, but I do think that a hallmark of entrepreneurial spirit is seeing solutions before other people did. And if it was that obvious when you did it, everybody else would have already done it. And it's fun. It's really fun to go test out something that you believe in, that you see, and and just like don't don't live your life for everybody else's expectations because you got one life and you're going to be dead for a long time. I think on uh, on behalf of uh, everyone that 
sat in on the conversation today. We were all lucky enough to hear this great advice and insights and commentary from you two. We're, we're, we're all very lucky that, I'm sure you would have been a great lawyer, Danny, but frankly, I think we're happy having you <laughs> and Dave in the hospitality business. And we all have so many memories, cherished memories at your restaurant. Let me just say one more thing while, while we can say anything we want to. <laughs> this other great piece of advice. I was on the college radio station at Trinity, WRTC, and I was always nervous. Yeah. I was just always so nervous when I would get up because who's listening? And I, I'd had no experience as a public speaker. And one of my professors said, you know what? If you're feeling butterflies, just remember, it just means that it matters to you. And from that minute, I learned how to speak publicly because instead of saying, I'm sweating, something's terrible, I'm about to, I'm about to go down with the ship, I just said, cool, this must matter. And then you just rise to the occasion. If Dave was uh, you know, thinking about professional golf, I think he's pretty cool under pressure. He can make a four foot putt. Oh, it's been a while, but I'll give it a shot. All right. Well, I don't know. Uh, I, think we're, I think we're wrapped up. We're at our uh, hour and five mark. But as, as I said, what a treat spending the hour with you two. Uh, you're uh, Trinity's national treasures. We appreciate you. And uh, you've both done so much for the college. And we're proud of you. We're proud of your success. And uh, you're just both great guys. I mean, and so... Uh, you really deserve all the success you've had and, and we're pulling for you to help this industry come back strong and to help lead this change that we started the conversation talking about. I think I'm optimistic. I think that the, the jolt the system's taking right now forces us all to be better, to just to act better, to question our own actions, what we've done in the past and what we can do going forward. And so uh, you two are, natural leaders. So I'll, I'll look to what you're doing, but I think we all have to look to ourselves to sort of, to be better in the future. So I think everyone appreciates you being here and I'm sure out there in the, in the internet world of Zoom, everyone's clapping. So thank you very much. Thank you, uh, both of you, John. You've got a future is all I can say. <laughs> you, are, you are good at this. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, okay. Danny. Bye guys. Bye,